Kia ora everybody, um, it's very nice to be here. Um, this is the first time, uh, for those of you who are less observant, I'm not Tusiata Avia. Um, <laughs> and there are no wild dogs under my skirt, n n n not even any skirts, but um, uh, this is the first time I've just read alone um, in a darkened room with Selena. So it feels like... Um, our honeymoon in some ways. <laughs> um, like all men, I'm, uh, there's a lot of performance anxiety for me. Um, there should be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know about girls from Avondale. That was a, <laughs> it's a part of town that South Aucklanders really went into and came back out from. Um, but it's very nice to be reading with Selena tonight. And, and we've sort of put some things together over the last couple of days because... Um, Tusiata was going to be here um, and uh, the theme for tonight is about our common love of poetry and, and why uh, a girl from Avondale and a boy from Papatoitoi um, ended up writing um, poems of all things and falling in love with the poem. And we're going to structure things into thirds really. Um, uh, Tusia <gasps> Selena. <laughs> All right. Selena's so, <laughs> going to, to talk for 10 minutes and read some poems and talk about um, her relationship to poetry. Uh, then I'm going to do the same. And then we're going to have a section that we haven't, well, that I haven't done for years and Selena never has. And it's called, in the, in the old days, um, uh, very early in my career, when I did some reading with, um, with Honi Tufari, we used to play a game called Pass the Toko Toko. Um, which is a stick, and what would happen is one person would read a poem, and the next person had to read a poem that in some way connected to the poem they just heard. So you don't know what you're going to read, um, and all preparation goes out the door. And um, so we have to, it's quite a fun game to play, but it, it, it means we don't really literally know what we're doing um, for about 20 minutes. And then after that, we will open the floor for anybody who wants uh, to ask us questions or give us a topic to read a poem on or mm. whatever it is you, you, you would like to do with that time and boss us around. Um, so, yeah, thanks for coming along on a, on a Saturday, giving up your Saturday night to come and listen to poetry, and I will hand you over to Selena. Oh, great. Tusi Tala, teller of tales that I never heard till yesterday, born away for another life. Today the tale I tell is theirs and yours, a way of seeking some more of Samoa, of my sacred centre. Today the tale I tell will book its way through tongued histories, sanctioned mysteries, spaces of silence timeless lives. Tala Tusi, tell the book. Word the spirit of brown in theory and creativity we make our sound renowned. I wrote that poem in 1996. I was one year into a PhD where I was uncovering the whakapapa, or the genealogy, of our first Pacific woman poets to publish a sole collection of poetry in English. I argued that they were Pacific literature's greatest secret, and the first person to publish was a Samoan poet by the name of Momoi Maliotoa von Reiki, who published in 1979. I didn't know about these woman poets, when I grew up in Avondale, and I came from a very multicultural school. And I wished that I had them as stars in my universe to navigate my voice with. And so that is part of my mandate as now a lecturer at the University of Auckland to make this knowledge available and clear and to place these stars of Pacific poetry in the night sky for all to navigate by. 
But in 1996, I was only a year into my research, and I was on a plane on my, on the, on my way to Honolulu, Hawaii, my first academic conference, and there were the stars, the groundbreakers of Pacific literature, Albert Went, Witi Ihamaira, Patricia Grace, Haunani K. Trask, Nora Vagibrash, um, Hone Tufare, Epele Haofa, these are people who are formative in my universe of, of Pacific stories and poetry. And I sat there suddenly beset and riddled with doubt and anxiety and, worried and, and worry. I just kept thinking, who am I to be going there and presenting my research? Who, who the hell am I actually was going through my mind. And then my grandfather came to me and he said, you're a Tusitala. You're a storyteller. Tusitala, teller of tales that I never heard till yesterday, born away for another life. And that poem has stayed with me virtually unchanged since 96. It has, you know, when we were talking, Glenn and I were talking about our common love of poetry, I said, for me, it's almost like poetry won't let me go. Poetry has a firm grip on my life because poetry has given me voice and it's given my community voice. And when I started seeing our own stories right there underneath our noses that weren't being taught in schools, I started finding my voice. So um, I'd like to share with you the first bit um, the first stanza of a poem called uh, In Dark Sparring. Um, a few years ago, I was asked to take part in a national debate, and the moot was, and I've just met Karen from Australia, but the moot was, Australia is the lucky country. And um, so I wrote a poem, of course, and the poem is titled, New Zealand is the lucky country. <coughs> and so here's the first stanza. New Zealand, the lucky country, Aotearoa, land of divine poetry, of papa, tua, nuku, and rangi, lovers of land, sky, and sea, progenitors of Māori. Yes, New Zealand's the lucky country. Lucky the brothers were restless sons, Lucky they warred when dark had won. Lucky they longed for the light of the sun and the warmth of the open air. Lucky Tane was the heart-led son, seeking bloodless revolution. Lucky he had the strength to stand and pry his parents apart. Lucky the lovers loved so much. Missing the caress of each other's touch, for Rangi cries tears from the sky so freely, and Papa's fecund soil so healing, <coughs> giving us Tane Mahuta's forests of jade green, rivers, lakes, underground springs, a green belt round this nation's hips, kissed all over by Moana's blue lips. From Te Waipounamu to Te Ika Amaui, green stone to fishtail, lucky, lucky country. <laughs> and because we love poetry, we love other people's poetry. And I just want to finish off my 10 minutes by reading out a poem that I dedicated to Glenn, regardless of his performance tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it will remain dedicated to you. And <laughs> Glenn has a book called, if you could hold up your book, Glenn, An Explanation of Poetry for My Father. Explanation of Poetry to My Immigrant Mother. For Glenn, two ends. Ma, ma, sometimes a poem's like the dawn raids, 2 a.m. door pounding, blue uniformed belligerence 
checking under beds, in closets for illegal rhymes, overstaying rhythms. Even cupboards are cleared for evidence. An extra pair of adjectives might give away the real number of lines living in this poem. <laughs> or ma, a poems like learning English from Stefano de Mera and Marlena as their days become our days, like sands through the hourglass, <laughs> language staged in click of tongue cock of brow. Or like when Salwyn Toogood yells, is it the money or the bag? And the poem every time chooses the bag, metaphorically speaking. <coughs> or the poems like the flea market at Avondale Racecourse, car boot mouths gaping, orange paisley silk, ochre itchy wool slung over the side, waiting to be inhaled by the wind's throat. Or ma, ma the poems like the kids' lucky dip bin, love, grief, rage, wrapped in headlines, bow-tied with rippling alliteration, guesses up for grabs. Or ma, a poems like one of those government schemes set up by Paddy Walker in the 50s. Someone had wrapped wood in the Sunday, in the Sunday news and lit a fire in the oven. So they ran classes about how to set the poem's knobs, how to ignite its hob, how the poem's mouth begins to roast the day's meat. Or how the poem is a passport, can transit the likeness of you from New Lynn to New Tao, fending off heat and mosquitoes, how its sound and image, its push and pull, can launch you across lined waters, where in another country you find yourself home. Thank you. I didn't plan to read this poem, but um, since you um, riffed off a poem of mine, I thought... You're being uh, responsive to my needs. I am. <laughs> I'm a kind, listening man. Um, I thought I would read a poem from an explanation of poetry, um, just as a way of mihiing back to, to your poem. Um, and just a short poem. And really sums up everything I will have to say. Uh, in 10 minutes, but uh, I've brought a couple of other poems to read as well. The word as a means of communication. Actually, the thing I like most about an explanation of poetry to my father is the dedication um, uh, to my mum and to my dad, who made me good and made me bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> the word as a means of communication, <coughs> above everything else. The word is an attempt to end isolation. The fingertips of heroes clinging defiantly to ledges. Small boats sailed fearlessly on wide oceans. That grass which grows from the armpits of concrete. Those temporary footsteps at regular intervals of Captain Scott disappearing into the snow. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, why do I love poetry? Um, it's a question I ask myself for the last 25 years writing, really. And I think like Selena, um, in some ways it's an itch to scratch grows out of scratching an itch, I think. And, and also probably, most practically, a deep curiosity for how the world works. Um, as I get older, my relationship to the poem changes. The poem is like a marriage, really, and I see the poem differently. And I, see, I look back and see how it was back then and how it is now. Um, 
And I think what I love most about it is it's, I think of it in terms of physics. The poem in all our speaking is the singularity. It's where everything began. It was our science. Yeah. It was our history. It was our entertainment. It was our religion. Yeah. Everything began with the poem. At its heart, it's a reaching out, an utterance, a trying to make meaning. And from that singularity, it shattered uh, into all these different things, our sciences, our histories, these different disciplines. But in the beginning, it was akin, I think, speaking, saying something. <coughs> uh, the beginning of language, when we first learnt to use our voice box to s for one organism to talk to the other, uh, akin to um, dipping your hand in pigment and slapping it on a cave wall. And I think still, in the heart of every poem that works, is the handprint that says, you know, Kilroy was here. Yeah. Or is anybody out there? Or help. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that's why I love the poem, because I think you can be lost in that forever, because it's, it, it's full of uh, pathways um, that take you on tangents and round and round. When you stand back, you can see um, that you're floating on a river. So I, that's why I love the poem. And that's really, that's the most sensible thing I'll have to say all night. Um, but I want to read two or three poems. I think to delight, um, I think it's another function of poems, is to delight. There's a great quote by William Carlos William, who, who's a doctor poet of court. It is difficult to get the news from poems. Uh, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Um, and I think the ability of the poem to create a world that we can delight in. Um, and sometimes I think at the end of our days, what we have are our stories, yeah, our songs, our musics, um, our interpretations of the world. Um, so two or three poems, and I really wanted to begin with this poem because, you know... Um, it comes out of this landscape. And whenever I come here, um, I go and, and, and pay homage down at Tua Marina uh, to fire Eileen um, Duggan, um, mm. who, who grew up there and, and has a memorial there. Um, uh, the tides run up the wide o. The tides run up the wide o. That fights against their flow. My heart and it together are running salt and snow. For though I cannot love you, yet heavy, deep and far, your tide of love comes swinging, too swift for me to bar. Some thought of you might linger, a salt of pain in me, for oh, what running river can stand against the sea. Mm. <laughs> and Selena asked me on the way in why I keep saying I'm getting old, and it's because of this Selena, yeah? <laughs> You keep calling yourself an old man, and I, I said, you're only eight years older than me, please don't. <laughs> well, all I'd say is you know what that means, Selena. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> I'm t I've just started to have to swap glasses, so. Um, a second poem, um, and this is a poem dear to my heart, because I guess as a young boy in South Auckland, this was the first time I heard someone speak with a voice that sounded like my dad. And my dad was a builder and I loved to hang out with him and his mates on the building site. And um, I read this poem in school. And, and also it's the first poem about an object I knew as a young boy. I would have been 11, 10 or 11. And each, I don't know, once every f five or six months, I'm not quite sure why, but my mum 
would take me in on the train, or sometimes I'd go with her, and she'd go in to see her lawyer, um, who was uh, right down the bottom of Queen Street. And we would catch the train into town, and I would walk with her. And for those of you who know it, um, I'd go into the, the chief post office down there, the old post office, which is, is now the Britomart. Um, and there was this great big statue of a Māori figure cast in bronze. Um, and I used to look it up at it as a small boy and, and be a bit intimidated by it. And then I heard this poem uh, in the voice that my dad knew about something I knew. And for the first time, poetry felt like it could be about my world um, and that you could make poems out of the way people talked in ordinary language. Um, it was a poem, of course, by Horni Tufari called To a Māori Figure Carved in Bronze outside the chief post office, Auckland. Um, so I thought I would read it for you. I hate being stuck up here, glaciated, hard all over, and with my guts removed. My old lady is not going to like it. I've seen more efficient scarecrows in seed-bed nurseries. Hell, I can't even shoo the pigeons off. Me, all hollow inside with longing for the marae on the cliff at Kohimarama, where you can watch the ships come in, curling their white moustaches. Why didn't they stick me next to Mickey Savage? Now then, he was a good bloke. Maybe it was a Tory city council that put me here. They never consulted me about naming the square. It's a wonder they never called it Hoary in the Gorge at the bottom of the hill. <laughs> because it's like that. A gorge with the sun blocked out. The wind whistling around your balls. Your balls, mate. And at night, how I feel for the Beetle Girls with their long-haired boyfriends licking their frozen finger-chippy lips, hopefully, <laughs> and me again beetling my tent eyebrows forever like a brass monkey with real worries. I mean, how the hell can you welcome the overseas dollar if you can't open your mouth to poke your tongue out, eh? <laughs> if I could only move from this bloody pedestal, I'd show the long hairs how to knock out a tune on the souped-up guitar, my mere quivering, my thayaha held at the high port. And I'd fix those ripe cortiros too, with their mini pew-pewed bums twinkling. Yeah! <laughs> Somebody give me a drink. <laughs> I can't stand it. <clears throat> I got to watch him do that poem night after night. Yeah. Um, and a small poem to finish, which is one of my favourite poems, I think. A small twinkling poem, and one I'm sure you'll know, but it, it never fails to delight me. It's called Jenny Kissed Me. Mm. Jenny Kissed... Because poems don't have to be flash, yeah? Um, Jenny Kissed Me When We Met Jumping from the chair she sat in Time, you thief who love to get sweets into your list, put that in. Say I'm weary. Say I'm sad. Say that health and wealth have missed me. Say I'm growing old. But add, Jenny kissed me. <laughs> I think any of those sums up what a poem is, you know. Um, which begins at with the end of the first third um, mm. of what we're doing, and there's no intermission, but we're going to start doing our passing the talker talker now. So um, 
I'm just going to leave the tukutuku there for a second um, because I'm going to pick up one of these fellas. The totems are poems that are not in books, so they represent poems that are out of books and oral poems or sung poems. So this is um, uh, Captain Cook, um, quite obviously, and um, I wrote, there's that old, we were talking about it the other day, that picture of Tupaya um, and Joseph Banks, uh, not Tupaya, painted by Tupaya, of Joseph Banks and an unknown warrior mm. in Tolaga Bay swapping a tupper cloth for a crayfish. Mm. And I repainted that and I put poems in their mouths because it occurred to me that we have two poetries in New Zealand. And this was our first painting of exchange between Pākehā and Māori. And I thought, in all our history, our visual arts have been exchanging motifs for generations, but our um, literary arts haven't, mainly because the languages um, don't cross across. Um, and there's a, a one whole poetry in Te Reo Māori and one whole poetry uh, uh, in written English. So I wanted to repaint that and I wanted to have Captain Cook, an exchange of literature um, when they first met. So instead of Joseph Banks, I painted Captain Cook. Mm. And he composes a motiatea on landing in Aotearoa. And the unknown warrior composes a sea shanty. Well, it's a cross between a sea shanty and a haka. I call it a shaka. Um, <laughs> so I thought I'd perform those pieces. A motiatea is kind of like a chanted poem. And, and a sea shanty, you will know. So I'll do those and then pass the tuku tuku back mm. to you. Um, the, the, so this, the, um, I'll do both um, because they're really one poem talking to each other about exchange of, of poetic forms. Um, on first landing in Aotearoa, Captain Cook composes a motiatea. The albatross at sea weeps, salt here rises, there falls, now lifts, now falls, oh hey dung, hey da do he, ha, he, ha, is there nowhere still? When I was a child, my father bent me to the plough. The sea big numbers counted me a steady hand. Where the ice assumed the land, I heard the earth crack all around. At that place, the sea breeds mountains. My ship, a threadbare pair of shoes, climbed all. Even here, the land lifts, breaks, lifts, breaks. I am, I am discovered. Not the compass, not the king, neither canvas nor the green drives me. It is the heart. Lifting, breaking, lifting, breaking. It is the heart. Lifting, breaking, lifting, breaking, lifting, breaking, lifting, breaking. A savage response to the explorer. James Cook, or Shanty of the Unknown Warrior. Oh, yo-ho-ho, yo-ho-ho, fish or devil, I don't know. Cargo rum and holy ghost, you look like you've seen a coast. Hey-ya-ha, hey-ya-ha, captain, you have come too far. Now's the hour, please push off. Tininga cookie kinote broth. Sixteen months upon the foam, he koi lightly when in Rome. E kitia kwe, e kitia oh, what about the quid pro quo? Oh, yo ho ho, yo ho ho. Kei taka kwe, if you don't go, kordalu ladle dear. 
Only birds walk upright here. Um, Just before we're about to begin our session, Glenn actually told me that um, he was really pleased that I was open to this idea of (laughs) exchanging the tokoto or passing the tokoto back and forth because not many people actually accept it. (laughs) And so, yeah. Anyway, I have bought the middle section of the Tusitala Toko Toko, which I'll be talking about in the uh, two sessions to come, uh, one tomorrow with Jane, about uh, the Poet Laureateship and what I've done with it since August last year. But um, it is made to travel, and it is in five parts, and I thought when Glenn proposed passing the Toko Toko that we would have the real Toko Toko here not just to measure his ability to please me tonight. (laughs) Anyway, um, um, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was uh, performed at the British Library, and um, they were celebrating uh, the 250th anniversary of Cook's discovery of the Pacific, and they welcomed indigenous responses. And so I said, well, how welcoming will you actually be, and they said, very welcoming, very welcoming. <laughs> so, um, so my session was called uh, On Cooking, Captain Cook. <laughs> and um, it riffs off a poem by a um, beautiful Hawaiian poet, Brandy Nalani McDougall. And I wrote a couple of recipes around the theme and ended up writing this love letter Um, which I haven't got here, but it begins, Dear Jim, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, it is you. (laughs) And so that that poem was called On On Breaking Up with Captain Cook. Um, And very timely, there was um, a picture that was going around social media of one of the uh, statues of Captain Cook, and it had been... um, defaced, someone had thrown a bright pink, um, a can of bright pink paint over it um, in protest of Australia Day, which which, um, is held on January the 26th every year um, as an anniversary of when British settlers first um, landed in Australia. Aboriginal peoples know it as a different day. Um, So this poem is called, and I just thought as part of my recipe sequence, I thought, oh! So the poem is called, How to Make a Captain Cook Cupcake with Pink Frosting. (laughs) Take one replica statue of Captain Cook, aged 104 years, displayed in a public place. If your kōri... Aborigine, know Australia Day as Invasion Day. Be a map marking massacres, uncharted rivers of blood. Be silenced, be blackbirded, be herded in shooting parties. Be shot, be left to rot in reserves. Be absent so your land can be mined. Have your bones lined up in museum cases for scientific inquiry. Be fired in your belly. Have your waters diverted, your gods converted, your babies stolen, your lines broken. Be almost wiped out. Be multiple, complex, and autonomous, then be labelled homogenous. Be poor, die more, and before any other people, be silenced no more. Be creative, be a maker, take a can of pink frosting be the baker. Thank you.
Damn you, Selena. <laughs> okay. That's called foreplay. I'm looking for the poem I want. Where is it? Do you want some alcohol? Exactly. <laughs> well, to get from that poem, that wonderful poem, to this poem, um, Selena talked about breaking up with Captain Cook, so I thought <coughs> I would read a poem about breaking up, if that's all right. Um, so um, this, book, this poem is from How We Fell, and I, ha I haven't read it for a long time, so please forgive me. I'll have mm. to... Um, Let me describe for you the death of love. It's, oh, it's not a good start, is it, really? <laughs> um, our love died like a bad actor on stage with a loud, <laughs> shot twice in the chest. He staggered to a window, breaking it in slow motion before falling headfirst from a tall building onto the roof of a passing car. Pulling himself slowly to his feet, he held on to the metal flagpole, which had skewered him on the way down. <laughs> While his trousers burst into flame from the cigarette butt tossed casually from the window by a passing motorist. His cries echoed through the street for the kilometre he limped to the wharves where he was beaten by local thugs and cast into the sea. Washing up with the tide, he pirouetted on one foot, then the next, until he stumbled onto the railway tracks, where he failed to notice the 12.30am train <laughs> speeding towards him. Later, after being backed over by the ambulance, <laughs> he woke tethered to a row of monitors in the intensive care unit, only to be told he had inoperable lung cancer almost certainly caused by passive smoking in the workplace with only a 1.4% five-year survival rate, at which point he lapsed into a coma when one of the doctors stumbled over an extension lead. <laughs> His heart continued to beat on screen while a young nurse watched, waiting for the next exciting episode. The one where the earthquake arrives, followed by the flood, volcanic eruption, devastating killer virus and crazed psychotic clown until eventually the show was scrapped and the scriptwriters died their appropriate deaths and Charlton Heston found the Statue of Liberty half buried on a deserted beach at which time the nurse woke from sleeping next to her patient's chest convinced she felt at last a definite albeit weak tug pulling against the palm of her hand. Bad mm. <coughs> one, bad one. <laughs> On that theme of death, <laughs> this farm's called The Day Amy Died. Uh, Amy Winehouse. For my sister, Sam. The day Amy died was day... 89 of my sister's sobriety and there was wine in the house no more. We spoke of demons over cups of tea, served with AA tracks and sliced up slogans on serenity. We spoke of Amy's celebrity, her heroin-fueled descent into rehab no man's land. We spoke of the waste, the talent and the damned, her pitch-black beehive hairdo unravelling, unceasing demons, unweaving locks <coughs> and stabbing pockmarked fingers into her pitted, mascaraed eyes running black tracks over cheeks, grudgingly biding their time. 
they nearly had her three years ago when she died in her husband's arms, addicts in arms, yet they threw her back to black, a tendriling teasing to see their work pleasing their master for another three years. Meantime, that website sprang up, placing bets on Amy's death and when and where it would take place, and when and where her rebellious, soul-fulling, jazzy voice would be wrung from her throat and thrown into the pit. And me and my sister spoke of the waste, the wealth, and how you can't buy yourself out of it. Mansions and Maseratis can't buy desire, can't smother self-delusional fires, celebrity status, can't buy will. It's that simple. And me and my sister spoke of how she, unlike Amy, was on day 89, still free. Thank you. Um, we just decided to do one more each and then, and then open things up <coughs> as time is shooting past. Um, I thought I would um, um, take this totem because um, uh, Selena's poem is a lament uh, on the loss, loss of someone who went too early and, and this is a totem of um, uh, Iris Wilkinson or Robin Hyde. Um, who was a fantastic uh, New Zealand writer and who <coughs> took her own life in Notting Hill in London, uh, I think in 1939, as, as, as still a young woman. And, um, uh, and so I wrote a, a, a lament for her uh, and also a love song to her. I remember her son, she gave her, her boy away when he was born. It was one of the sadnesses she carried with her. Um, because in those times she couldn't keep him. And the boy never knew his mum, but I remember um, listening to him as an older man in his 70s. He wrote uh, Derek Chalice. He helped write a um, biography about his mum. And I was a young writer, and he talked at the festival, and there were tears in his eyes, and you could see that he had spent years searching for his mum and writing the book. And it was very moving, and there were these massive pictures of Iris behind him as he was talking. And she was beautiful, and her work is beautiful. And, and I hate to say this on our honeymoon, but I started to fancy her. And I thought, this is weird that I should fancy a woman who's been dead for 50 years, but she's gorgeous. And that frisson, that little butterfly that rises in our heart. And I thought, well, I would write her a, a love song. So I'll finish my segment of the toko toko um, with this um, uh, a love song to Iris. Um, and Iris was born in, in Berenpore in Wellington and grew up around there and there's stories of her around Lyle Bay and went to Sydney. Um, yeah, um, it's called A Letter to Iris. In Berampu, among the pool, the little houses stack. In Lyle Bay, the seagulls play. What net can hold that catch? In Lyle Bay. The seagulls play, what net can hold that catch? For I am here, and you are there, who knows what lies between? Did we once meet on Bolton Street? For all's not all it seems Did we once meet On Bolton Street For all's not all it seems 
in Sydney town. Once I went down to hear the Tasman roar. The heft, the heath, the weft, the weave, the gods bereaved the call. The heft, the heath, the weft, the weave, how unrelieved the roar. For I am well, the tui swell. The southerly drops in While we drink tea On Lambton Quay I sip, you sip, we grin While we drink tea On Lambton Quay I sip, you sip, we grin In Notting Hill I sing you still From sorrow, soil and stone Inside your eyes The Godwits hide Here let them rest a while Inside your eyes The Godwits fly now let them rest a while For I am here And you are there Who knows what lies between Did we once meet On Bolton Street For all's not all it seems did we once dance in Plymouth Park? What's been has been still clings. Did we once meet on Bolton Street? For all's not all it seems. Seems like too many young women writers take their own lives. Um, and often due to the constrictions that they find themselves in, in a particular era or society or community. Um, so I'm going to finish off with a poem called Outcast. And it's about not conforming and giving yourself permission to be, in Alice Walker's words, nobody's darling. So both Glenn and I have um, um, riffed off and included the words of other poets that have had us in their grip. The first four lines are from Alice Walker's poem, Be Nobody's Darling. Outcast. I'm a darling in the margins, but you said, be nobody's darling, be an out cast. Take the contradictions of your life and wrap around you as a shawl to parry the stones, to keep you warm. And I keep what you said, pinned by brass tacks against every wall, because I'm a darling by nature, traitor to the rebel, Show me a mould and I'll fill it. An unmade bed and I've already made it. Draw me a paper road and I'll sign it over to whoever says they need it, diverted for a better cause. But you said, be nobody's darling. And that which casts me out is cast about me. That which warms my flesh guards my bones. And when I found it to be true, that part about freedom, your shawl became a fall of hooker curls plunging black through suburban streets, 
A grey beach cottage firing power spirals under its eaves. His hand pressing want under the wake table. A cocooning quilt pulled back under the slim promise of sun. A brown woman walking, genealogy swimming her calves. A green dress worn on a blue-blue day because she can. Be nobody's darling. It's become a map to get us beyond the line, the justified edge, that breaking page. It's become a map in my arms to get us beyond the reef. That was more fun than I thought it was going to be. See, <laughs> I told you. We've just got to mix it up a bit. You know? um, it, there's six or seven minutes to go. Um, so um, you may not want to ask us any questions uh, at all. I don't mean to be presumptive. Um, uh, we're happy to just keep on passing the toko toko. But if you have any questions you wanted to ask about about poetry or any poems you particularly wanted read or um, it, yeah mm. it's your turn now or if you want to yeah read your own poem and entertain us <laughs> yeah that would be <laughs> awesome too yeah yeah no he I, I you know they I, I guess it's an old cliche, but they did break the mould, you know. And, um, yeah, I think he had... There were a whole lot of different influences in his life that created the language that he used. He was able to, you know, make... Uh, you know, he grew... The first book he used, he read a lot, was the Bible. So, And, and yet he grew up sort of... Uh, in Auckland and um, became a boilermaker, so he married that sort of King James version of the Bible, that sort of English, with, you know, give me back me fucking marbles, you kids, you know. <laughs> and, and, and I love that he turned that into a line of poetry, you know. It's, it's a great line of New Zealand poetry. Um, that's like, we would have grown up with that, you know. It's like, can you say that in a poem? Um, so I think, yeah, he, he, he put those languages together and he charmed it and he got away with it. Um, and, and the thing that I think defined him most was his unionism, you know, which I think too is probably a bit old-fashioned too. I remember being surprised. I thought being Māori would define him hugely, but it was his, he was staunchly socialist and ruthlessly fair, would share everything generous to a fault, remarkably so, but he was, yeah <laughs> and he was a big tease to read with, he was terrible to read with I would be reading to children yeah, and they would be laughing and I think, wow I must be awesome, you know, this must be a funny poem, <laughs> and I'd turn around he'd be going <laughs> behind my back, so yeah, was Selena doing that? I, I yeah, I get the feeling, actually. Yeah. There's a question there. Yeah. yeah. Selena, you talked about those authors that you discovered and they became your stars to navigate by. I just want to, with the way you tell poetry and speak poetry, your you know, verbal rhythms and, and meters, who were your inspirations for that? Were, were they Pacific? I didn't, I didn't have the Pacific role models in front of me. Who I had was Pam Ears. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. I know, yeah. awesome, right? Yeah. Pam Ears, Spike Milligan reading on the Sunday radio in the morning and his lilt and his rhythm and his embodiment of language kind of making it leap off the page. And, of course, Sam Hunt, you know, who was really the formative influence when I was 11. And, it, and showed me the possibility that, you know, you could be weird, wacky, wild, and loved, you know. So he, he made my difference feel the same, like I could, I identified with him. But of course, I didn't find my voice till decades later. 
but that's that's partly why and I probably speaking for Glenn too that we're involved in writers in schools you know that the New Zealand Book Council run because you sow the seeds you know it's not it's not our job to to kind of make people into poets but you just you know you sow the seeds and 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 who knows what will happen yeah so so yeah to, to answer your question no I only encountered Albert Wendt's work um, when I got to university. There was nothing, not even Witi Ikamaida. And this is like a really multicultural school in Avondale. Just didn't know they existed. I'm just wondering what your children think of you guys being poets. <laughs> 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 They're home watching TV. <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I, I've got the um, going to the Byron Bay Literary Festival next month, and they've put me on a panel titled um, "How to Get Boys to Read," and I've only ever publicly said my three rugby league playing sons do not read, they do not read, and I don't know how to get them. I don't. I've read to them in the womb. I read to them probably while they're being conceived. You know. So, you know, and um, I did drag my 16-year-old here. Some of you may have seen if you went, came with us on the boat trip. And um, today he's just, it's been bed, bath, bed, bath, bed, bath, because we live on Waiheke Island, no, no bath. So he actually said to me this morning, yeah, this is, this is pretty cool, what, what you do. <laughs> but you've got a girl, and everyone knows that girls read earlier and widely, yes? Um, yeah, like, um, Olive has grown up with me reading, and so um, for years she just came with me reading, um, and she would sit and colour in during a reading like this, or some, there's always a nice person, there's always at least one nice person comes to a poetry reading, <laughs> and they would sit beside her and she would... Um, and then a, a couple of years ago, she just got, she's a very sweet girl, and she's just got this, now she's condescending and patronising in the sweetest possible way, you know, which is, I think, worse. And so I say, do you want to come with me? Oh, Dad. I think I'll be okay this time. So she puts the knife in just very kindly but it's still I still feel it slip between my ribs but I think yeah um I, well, I you, you just never know what detonates do you really and what the influences are because I don't know about you Selena but there, like I say there's no literary models in my family really so um and I think yeah our, our children it's a job of children in a sense I think to sort of reject us and, and go off you know and be their own person so I, I kind of like I like it that she's doing that and she she worries about you know face masks at 15 and what to do with her hair and what outfit goes with what outfit and yeah well d and d my 16 year old did say you, you don't have to try so hard <laughs> I, I, I wrote a poem um, called um, Poetry for Warrior Boys and we were at the inaugural Dick Smith Rugby League Tournament at Eden Park and I wrote a poem thinking they'll read this, it's all about rugby league and I read it to them and they went that is not about rugby league <laughs> 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 and actually, their, their, their critique was, you don't know nothing about the game and you don't care about the game because you, you are describing everyone else. Everyone dresses up at these tournaments and I was describing the whole the crowd and the movement and the energy and it was really interesting and they said to me, you, you didn't describe one play, you didn't, you know, we know you don't care so just stop trying. <laughs> it's in here anyway if you're interested. <laughs> Um, shall we have, because we, we don't want to keep you out late, um, and shall we have one more question, and then maybe shall we finish with a poem each to a, our kids? Have you got a poem? It's a really long one that isn't about rugby okay. league, apparently. Okay. But <laughs> I, I've got one I could finish off with, yeah. Yep. Is there a last question? 
Yeah. Uh, short answer, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do your own stuff as well. I mean, a lot of writing is rewriting. Um, and, but yeah, yeah, most poets would send their... And there's, there's specialist poetry editors. Um, yeah. And they, 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 they do make a difference. Yeah. I've had my work edited by um, fiction and, not, and creative non-fiction editors, and it's a very different relationship with the text. So... Um, and while while it's all your work, these poetry editors make sure that what you're saying is absolutely true on the page, and so they not only fact check everything, you know, even if you've made it up, it still has to be true in in a strange sense. But they challenge you and make sure that that word is absolutely necessary to sit on that line. Yeah. Yeah, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, I would pay someone to be that interested and engaged in my work, you know. Mm. Because our children aren't. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, (laughs) I will read, and then you can finish off, I will read a um, poem in Tightrope, and it's called uh, The Working Mother's Guide to Reading 70 Books a Year and dedicated to my unsympathetic children. Um, I, I was appalled that a, a Texan poet um, who I love, he was on tour and um, he said everybody should aim to read 70 books a year. And he said this while his wife had just given birth four weeks earlier and he was on tour around the States. And I thought, The Working Mother's Guide to Reading 70 Books a Year. (laughs) Don't have the babies. (laughs) Don't have a full-time job. Don't be working class. Don't be time poor and extended family rich. If you did have the babies, don't let them play sports. Definitely don't let them play an instrument. Extramural activities increase peak hour traffic commuting time. (laughs) Have a partner, but only if they don't mind not seeing you. Definitely put a bookshelf in Nana's room to handle the overflow of washing, not books. (laughs) If you did need that full-time job, put your foot down and don't work past 5 p.m don't need much sleep. If you are working class, do read about all the reading working class people do, like Jeanette Winterston, who hid 77 paperbacks under her ever-rising single-bed mattress (laughs) until her torch-bearing mother spied an overhanging leaf which turned into a branch which turned into a tree laden with leaves and leaves and leaves, which mother, doing God's gardening, pulled up by the roots, dragged into the midnight yard and lit. A bonfire of words and urds and urds and and As the smoke stung her eyes, Jeanette inhaled its burning kiss, vowing to commit the stories to memory, then vowed one better, I'll write my own. Read at half time when the water boy runs on the field, skipping. (laughs) Read one handed in line at countdown while lifting. Read in the car waiting for the coach to finish his speech on quitting. Read in the kitchen while the crock pot's stewing. Read on the handbag Kindle while it's charging. Read knowing it's not a competition. Read poetry, read creative non-fiction, and even if it takes you a whole year, read a novel. Thank you. 
And I'll finish with a poem for Olive. Thank you very much for coming along. And um, yeah, it, uh, I think sometimes, you know, readings are made by audiences more than anything else. Yeah. And, and um, uh, it's a third time, second or third time in the that I've read at this festival. And um, third time. And yeah, the audience are magnificent. You know, it's lovely to have people that. Um, are interested in language and stories and words, so thank you for coming along. And, and this is a prayer I wrote for my daughter, um, a secular prayer, um, uh, because I didn't really believe in the other type after growing up with them for many years. Mm -hmm. and, um, and actually it was a poem suggested by Kate de Goldie. I was reading with... Mm. I, I was on a panel with Kate about what to, when she'd written the 10pm question and we were asked what do children worry about or think about um, in the middle of the night? And mm. I thought, well, <laughs> better go and ask my child what they think about. So she sat down and, and she was eight, about eight at the time, and she told me all the things. It's quite interesting what she did think about. Um, so I put them all down and Kate said, turn it into a poem. So I went back and did and turned it into a prayer. So um, a prayer to finish with, shall we say, a secular mm. prayer for Olive. I'm bad at this, and you know I'm opposed. But just in case there is something to it, let me ask what my daughter asks. Please, don't let there be burglars tonight, or tsunami, or storms. I myself would like the storms. There is a list of animals we were hoping to talk to. Elephants, tigers, kangaroos, and mice. Could we make it all of them? And birds as well, but not fish. <laughs> Maybe fish. <laughs> Can we get back to you? As for witches, let them all fall at the toll of the bell. Although I quite like witches mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> there is little else to ask. We have love and water and imagination. But if none of the above are possible, let this last demand be the sum of all our hopes and dreams. Simply one morning to wake to a horse. <laughs> of course. Fresh from a distant land. Foam flank and magnificent, eating grass on the front lawn. <laughs> Let there be in his eye a calm look of confidence and reassurance, as though we had been summoned. This at least seems a worthy request. Nothing more. Nothing less. Ooh. Oh, let's, let's stand up and hold.